in the house. Let me hear your bar. Let me see your bite. Let me see your scar. You know what we about. Come see us in the yard. mediocre Husky football podcast on the entire internet. I'm Andrew Berg. Remember to subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. And with me tonight, back from a brief self-imposed hiatus, they call her the Muhammad Ali of the pickleball courts, but that's just for the trash talking. It's Gaby Lucas. Gaby. Hello. What's going on? That's, um, I'm, I, I I'm just would like to say I very much enjoyed that nickname as inaccurate as it might be, and I'm going to be putting that on my resume ASAP. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, it could ever uh, hurt to have, like, one more line item that doesn't uh, mm-hmm. show any professional skill. You always want to get your resume longer is what I've found. Yeah. The more you Six can stretch it out. Yeah. Minimum. That's what really gets somebody's attention. Yeah. We are closer than we have been in a long time to Husky football being played. We're in a fall or winter camp, depending on the weather that day. Uh, the most recent news is a 9-6 to six scrimmage with lights and referees and all of the types of things that a football game would have. That doesn't sound very good. It doesn't seem to speak very well of our four-headed uh, quarterback battle, nobody particularly asserting himself. What do you make of a 9-6 to six score in a scrimmage and what that means for our chances against Cal in whatever it is now, eight nights, nine nights, ten nights? I um – yeah, so obviously there's no way to look at that score and be like, even even okay, even with the disclaimer that like practice scrimmages always favor the defense, and especially with the new installation and the quarterback still figuring their shenanigans together, so you're never going to expect a high score, or you never want to see a high score. Like I would be much more worried if it was like 49 to 42, then I would be freaking my brains out. Um, but I guess a nine to six, it's like the, I'm still a little bit freaking out, but at least there is enough of a precedent to look at that and think that the magnitude of that that low scoring of an offense probably won't hold up throughout the year, um, considering how good UW's defense should be and then knowing the, um, you know, the playbook and all that. Um, But yeah, I definitely looked at when I saw that, that score at the end of it was like, uh, okay. Yeah, let's, no kidding. Let's do it. Also, I'm really sad that they presented as 9-6 to six and not the opposite because I'm yeah. just, you know, in the year of our Lord 2020, there's not much going for the world or any of us. But when you can make a score, just turn it around and it's very nice, <laughs> you should do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it sounded like there were at least some of the concerns were about the quarterback play. Some were about the offensive line. Uh, maybe the quarterbacks weren't allowed to play well due to a poor offensive line. Uh, does it make you feel any differently if, if we're more concerned about the line than we are about the quarterback play itself? Or is that just like more of more of the same problem? Um, I think it changes my outlook a little bit on who I want to be quarterback, but I don't think – I think, yeah, like what you say, um, as far as just outlook in general, uh, I think it's kind of more of the same thing. You know, if you look at guys who are going to be touching, either touching the ball or touching 
keeping another person touching the dude who's touching the ball every every single play. It's all six of those players. So um, uh, I, th- I think part of me feels like I, I would rather – I mean, you don't want any of those positions to be sucking shit, but considering that there's a learning curve, blah, 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 both of them are replacing a crap load – I kind of would feel better knowing that, like, the offensive line isn't doing greatest point in the game because if you're looking at it and going, oh, the offensive line is kicking ass and our quarterbacks suck, then then there's really nowhere to move from there. But if it's just a matter of pressure and real and looking at the circumstances where you're moving a, a decent amount of um, new offensive linemen and kind of getting everything configured there, um, then it feels like you're much closer to the floor than the ceiling. So, I mean, that's, you know, none of, there's no good scenario there, but that's definitely the better one. Cause then if you look at it as, okay, the offensive line is still figuring their stuff out, figuring positional, um, nuances, et cetera, with all they're replacing and the quarterbacks are not playing very good because the offensive line is just still figuring their stuff out allowing a lot of uh, uh, pressure, then, um, you know, once they aren't allowing that pressure, it makes everyone's job that much easier, you know? Yeah, and it's hard to know without having seen the game, is this our interior line where we have the most or the least experience of the players we anticipate getting the most snaps? Were they getting blown up by our defensive line? Was it, uh, you know, exotic blitzes that were confusing young linemen seemed like that would be kind of unlikely in a scrimmage. Was it, you know, pressure off the edge uh, that, you know, yeah. how, how does our defensive line compare to the ones we're going to be playing during the season? Well, let's take that another step further. So I, I think there's at least an argument, at least three arguments that can be made about the quarterback position based on the conversation we just had. Argument number one is if we don't have a great offensive line, we want, a quarterback who can make plays with his feet, so we should go with uh, Kevin Thompson. Argument yeah. number two would be if neither quarterback of the, the two who seem presumptively the favorites, Thompson and Sermon, is playing well, then maybe go with the guy who has a higher ceiling and more room to grow in Sermon, because if you're already maxed out with Thompson and it's not very good, then you might as well at least try the guy who has more potential. Argument three would be if your top two guys are bad, try somebody else. Uh, and that was kind of what I was thinking of as you were just walking through that floor and ceiling discussion. You know, maybe this is an argument to just give Dylan Morris a shot if we start seeing this pattern emerge in competitive games. Does does one of those three arguments seem more plausible or more persuasive to you? I'm kind of caught in between them myself. I, I, I feel like I just need to see the quarterbacks in the offensive line play first so I can really diagnose what's happening. But, you know, just based on reports that we've heard so far, do any of those things sound more persuasive in your mind? Yeah. Um, so I, and of course, everything we talk about has a disclaimer of like, none of us, what's going on at the end, blah, blah, blah. But, um, I think if you had asked me at the beginning of camp or in the spring or summer or whatever, um, I would have kind of gone with the option, too, of wanting Sermon, you know, except upside, blah, blah, blah. There's more, you know, whatever. Um, but then when you look at 
what the circumstances kind of appear to be with what limited the marketing information is out there, I kind of feel like option one makes the most sense both as, and I think there's two reasons for that. Um, obviously on field, when you're looking at, when you're just considering on field play, um, and just in a vacuum of just this season, like winning now, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think if you're, obviously it's the aspect of if the offensive line is still learning and coming along and it hasn't, you know, isn't perfect yet. Um, obviously you want a guy who's going to be able to get out of that and not just get sacked immediately. And that's Thompson. Um, and then when you look at the proactive usage of his mobility instead of just as a defensive mechanism against the pass rush, I think if you look at an offense or quarterback or whatever that's struggling, maybe, um, regardless of how much struggling, that his I, establishing early on um, – uh, in the season and in games, his mobility is a threat for other defenses just to give them something to make them pause for a half a second, um, you know, every play and give them something to see so that maybe they're, you know, having to defend this other option, which um, not an option in the set in the no sense, but literally just an option um, of him running it, I think opens up the field for, um, where in a it, where if you have three quarterbacks who can use as much of it opening up as possible, you know you take the guy whose ability will do that, um, even if all else is the same. Um, and then the but from a different perspective, why I feel like um, Thompson is kind of the guy who I would be the most comfortable with right now with the information that we're deducing even though, you know, that information isn't, is marketing and is, isn't that, who knows how accurate it is, is that this is such a hugely, and it's such a hugely influx um, year for this program that if, say if Peterson were, say if we didn't go eight and, uh, eight and four last year, or eight, eight and four, eight, eight, five. Five, eight and five, um, and, you know, say we got 10 wins or 11 wins, then I'd say, okay, now I feel like there's a little bit of room as far as um, perception and how that affects recruiting and in um, in uh, subsequently talent accumulation, then, okay, maybe go with a guy who there might be some lumps, but it's a higher, you know, that, that'll pay off in the future. But I think right now with, A, the coaching change, B, how the record was last year um, was obviously a dip from those four years with Browning and Gaskin. Um, I think UW really doesn't have as a program the leeway in the collective consciousness of both the public and of recruits to really be able to afford to go, uh, well, I was going to say eight and five again, but, you know, we're only playing seven games or eight, including a bowl maybe. Um, so I think it's it's really important for when you're looking at accumulation of talent and not totally dropping off and then creating a problem for ourselves two to three to four years down the road to show that with this new coach that things aren't going to drop off and then we're going to lose talent and then that drop off will 
you know, continue and, and kind of snowball. So for both those reasons, it feels to me like if what we're seeing is true or what's being kind of half leaked is true about the offenses that I think Kevin Thompson holds the most benefit both for now and in the future. Um, and, you know, of course, what we're hearing and hearing asterisk could totally not be true. So if that's the case, then everything goes out the window. But that's the more I think about it, the more I feel. That makes sense. I, I hear what you're saying, especially the part if you're not growing, you're dying, that you're, you're either getting yeah. better or you're getting worse. Unless you're the very best or the very worst team in college football, you're probably mm-hmm. going either up or down. And yeah. there are a lot of other uh, gravitational factors working against the Huskies right now, largely, uh, you know, the the status of the Pac-12 in general relative to the rest of the country and having a turnover of one of the more successful coaches in program history to a, somebody who's never coached before at a head coach level. So, uh, you, yeah, you don't want to pile up more problems on top of that. Uh, but let's talk about something a little more promising, even if it didn't manifest itself in a bunch of points in the scrimmage. We've heard a lot of really good things. Again, this is all secondhand information, reported information, nothing we've got to see. But it sounds like Cam Davis and Rome Odunze have both been making a lot of noise at their respective positions. You know, it it seems from our perspective, from my perspective at least, that Rome looks like he has a clearer path to playing time, particularly if there are, uh, you know, lingering injury concerns for Pukunakua that opens up a spot in the starting lineup for a wide receiver. Uh, Cam Davis will probably be battling it out with Richard Newton, but he does kind of have that combination of power and elusiveness that neither Sean McGrew nor uh, Richard Newton have shown so far. So he may be kind of the, the, the bell cow running back to take the reins, you know, we've had this lineage from Chris Polk to Bishop Sankey to Miles Gaskin to Stevon Ahmed. It's been this great run of, of lead running backs, and Cam Davis looks like he might be the next guy in that succession. Who do you think of those two ultimately makes more of an impact on offense this year? Does either become a regular starter, or is it more a growth year getting into 2021? I like that. I like that video. Like, there's no – they're both going to have a huge role from the, from both of you look at just their film as high school recruits and from what reports say. Um, I think I would go with Davis just because of uh, a, obviously as a redshirt freshman instead of a true freshman um, and looking at the state of both their respective positions. And if you take the uh, reports ish of the quarterbacks and offensive line at their word, you know, that gives him probably more opportunities than Rome. Um, but I think both of them, I, I mean, I, I said this, I don't, I don't, I, I don't really know how to, how to answer this as a either or, um, but I think I may, I think I would take Cam and I think this is kind of comparing apples to oranges um, beyond just their, their, their different positions. Um, but I remember just, I mean, if you, you know, watching his film, seeing, seeing, um, instances that looked like Najee Harris's film, for example, in Alabama, um, the difference is that Najee Harris did it every single play versus, you know, just here and there for Cam Davis. But I think, especially when you look at the composition of the wing backs room with the trio of him, Newton, and McGrew, and then obviously you have, uh, you know, Kamari Pleasant and the two true freshmen, 
um, as supporting cast members. Um, but I think when you look at those three as, as a trio or as, as a committee that will take up obviously the majority of the snaps there, um, Davis, while the youngest, is definitely the most complete. Um, and I think that's on a, on a side note, I think that's kind of what I'm really looking forward to about the offense for, for all of the, um, <laughs> the question marks and the, and the things that are really nerve wracking about this offense because of all those unknowns. I think one thing that you can just be excited about, uh, full stop is having a running backs room where every single, um, every, you know, every one of those three is, so different, but brings a, a valuable skill set to the table, whether you're just looking at Newton as a bruiser and McGrew as kind of that scat back, but also he's really good at getting leverage because he's so short. And I think that's something that you saw him improve um, throughout his career, significant, like significantly improve from, you know, four years ago to now. And then Davis is kind of having that power and more speed, um, Obviously, he's not a scat back because he's what six one or six foot. Um, so I guess I didn't answer your question. I think I would I would go with Davis there, um, just because he's in a I think the he's in a position just to to be more involved. Um, I think, but I'm I'm really excited about Rome too. I think, um, looking at both the circumstances of the receivers and his skill set and size and everything, I, I think we all could have guessed that he would be making some impact it was a matter of how 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 big of one it would be and you know obviously it looks right now like it'll be pretty good <laughs> so yeah, yeah i'm excited for both of them it's I mean, it's not necessarily an either or question i think they they could both be major contributors i think the only argument against davis is just the snap count that you know there are typically three receivers on the field in our offense and one running totally. back so it, it it's going to give him fewer opportunities if he's not the guy, but I, I, I kind of do hope that he finds his way into that primary back role because I, I think Newton was really effective doing what he did last year and ramping up his workload to something more like 20 touches a game might not maximize his impact uh, at the right. times when he is in the game. So keeping him fresh to really, you know, knock guys over with yeah. might might be the best way to get out of him. Uh, well, yeah, I think I think you'd be right. Yeah. As long as we're looking at ways to think of this positively, a nine-six score also means that both our starting and defensive defenses held their opponents uh, to single digits, right? Uh, do you think there's a chance that some of this uh, result is just that our defensive line is this good? Like the reports about the offensive line looking bad are just strictly relative to an exceptionally good defensive line. And I, I, to contextualize that a little bit, do you think there's a better defensive line in the conference? I think Oregon would and USC would probably be uh, the two that you'd line us up against, but uh, USC lost their nose tackle to an opt-out. Uh, Oregon's going to be really tough, but are we going to run into a defensive line tougher than the one that our offensive line lines up against in practice? Yeah, um, I think you're probably right that it's probably us, Oregon, and USC. Um, although I think we probably have more. I, I need to. Go, I need to. I would need to go through all the rosters and really look at that. Because um, I, yeah, I, I don't. And I'd and for what it's worth, I also besides just their talent level, how have they been developed? Um, I know Oregon really relies on, for example, Jordan, Jordan Scott. 
as kind of just being that giant uh, two gap mm-hmm. stuffer and letting everyone else do do um, do their jobs behind him. Um, but I mean, part of me wants to say, I, th- I mean, I think that's part of it when you're looking back at that scrimmage, the nine to six scrimmage. Obviously, that's part of it. Um, but I, I, with a score that low, I'm hesitant. Not hesitant. I think it would be super naive and homer of me to respond with, yeah, that's because their defensive line, that's all on the defense. I mean, certainly they're really, you know, they're going to be a good defense and the defenses obviously have the, um, advantage in these scenarios, but there's the defense winning and then there's nine to six. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of it, I think part of the, part of that, along with the, just the magnitude, or along with them, not that, along with uh, just the defense and, you know, knowing exactly what they're going up against with, with their own team's offense. I think a lot of it is also just if you look at the depth on our defense versus the depth on our offense, it's, I think the ones v ones maybe be more competitive, but then if you're doing a whole scrimmage where you're going down through the twos and threes and and so forth, the twos on defense are going to look a lot better than the twos on offense on this team. Yeah. So I think that's that's a huge part. But that just just saying that doesn't make me feel that much better. <laughs> it makes yeah. me feel somewhat better, but it's kind of a it's like well, if I have to feel better about something, that'll be it. Um. Yeah. Well, as long as we're on the subject of depth pieces defensively, let's talk a little bit kind of working our way back in the formation. It sounds like uh, maybe a little bit of a, a change is that Daniel Hamuli has been getting some run with the first unit as an inside linebacker uh, alongside Eddie Ulafosho. Do you think he's the best uh, inside linebacker partner uh to, to get that other starting spot? Do you have a preference there? I mean, obviously it's going to depend a lot on what's happening behind closed door right now, but just based on his recruiting profile and everything we heard about him through practice last year, it sounds like he would have a lot of the, bring a lot of the things to the table that we would need to fill that gap that, that was kind of open for all of last season at that second inside linebacker spot. Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think that, I think what you just said right there makes sense. Um, And, I, I'm really, I'm in these sorts of scenarios, I'm always really hesitant to be, to come out and say definitively, like, yeah, this is definitely what I think. This is definitely the case, blah, blah, blah. Um, just because there's, I mean, that's during a normal fall camp, because what do we know? Um, but then especially you add on the layers of secrecy on this camp and like, you know, who knows? But um, I think the linebackers, other than their their youth, really remind me kind of of the defensive version of the running backs and that you have such a of skill sets there. Um, you know, whether you're looking at Tafisi as just this thumper um, and then Haimuli is obviously definitely a, a speed guy. And I think that was, that was sorely missing last year. That was if, if you wanted to look at besides just um, assignments and having the right instincts um, and Wellington and Manu were, were just not fast enough really, or, or not fast, not fast, uh, but not quick enough, and those are those are different. If anyone's listening to that and going, "Why did you just change your words?" Those are quick and fast are two different things. Um, but I think if you're looking at like your Lefosho and, and Hamuli next to each other, I think that's a, that is 
I feel like one of the more, if not the most versatile combinations on the inside. So I feel like if you're looking at that as a base for the inside linebackers personnel wise, um, that's something that Haimuli advancing to that point where he could potentially be a starter, um, would be something that would make me just as a fan very, feel a lot better and feel much more comfortable. Um, and then, you know, obviously you can upgrade and quote unquote defensive jumbo packages with Sermon and, uh, Tafisi and maybe Tupotala, um, there. And then Ayu and, and Calvert being the wild cards with their knee injuries in the past, um, and coming off of that. Um, I've just said, um, a lot, but yeah, so that, that's kind of my gut reaction is, is knowing that Haimuli's specialty or particular skills, um, is about speed and how much that was sorely missed last year, I think it, that, that bodes well to my, in, in the back of my mind. I, yeah, I think that that sounds right to me. The only concern it would raise to me is if they stick with the hockey line shifts and do two and two, if the, like you said, the mm-hmm. jumbo package of Sermon and Tafisi would probably really struggle in pass defense. But, yeah. you know, it's certainly, you have the option to, Staggered the subs a little bit more, um, and and or keep somebody on the field more often. So it's it's not necessarily uh, a fait accompli. Uh, again, moving back one more layer in the defense, the probably the guy in the secondary who's been getting the most press has been Kyler Gordon. I don't think that's to demean any you know Elijah Molden or Trent McDuffie because they're established stars. But what do you think would be ultimately the best way for Kyler Gordon to get on the field given? the high level of performance and depth in the secondary in front of him on the depth chart. Yeah. I don't even know. Cause the, I mean, I think the secondary to me um, feels very similar to the interior, interior defensive line, except for with more experience there. Um, in that I feel like really at strength is that you could rotate pretty much completely the starters yeah. and the twos still really be on top of things. And then as the advantage of being able to do that as the game progresses of just having players that aren't completely whooped by the end of the game so that they can still play at a speed that's really problematic for opposing offenses. Um, so if you're looking at, at the question of Kyler Gordon and to an extent, you know, Julius Irvin um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, so many of those players. Hampton. Yeah, Ham- yeah, Hampton, Hampton, although he's probably not. Um, if When I think of the, the secondary players that are the guys that you're like, we have to get you on the field, how yeah. are you going to do that? Yeah. It's, I would think, Gordon and then Irvin. Um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, I, I, so, so many of the other guys are so trustworthy and so reliable that um, – it feels kind of just like, well, let's just rotate you guys and see everyone an opportunity to make plays because we know we know that you guys all. Um, I think if you're looking at the safety spots, I, I mean, I should back up and say, you know, who knows how applicable this is because Gordon, when he did play mostly, if not exclusively, I don't know. We could ask Matt because he has the snap counts for that outside corner. Um, but he's such a versatile athlete. And such a freak athlete that I, I, you know, put him at safety, see what happens, you know. Um, and if I look at the safeties and think uh, one, 
or of the secondary in general, one particular player who maybe could be, uh, you know, Gordon and Urban, et cetera, um, improvement would be at his expense. It would probably be Cam Williams. Um, so I could see maybe, you know, stick Gordon, but that's yeah, I think really the kind of what you're getting at is, you know, there's, it's hard to imagine breaking through Keith Taylor or Elijah Molden or Trent McDuffie. You guys will occasionally sit out a snap or two, I would I would guess. Uh, you know, yeah. they, they didn't miss a lot of snaps last year. But you're going down the list. Eventually you're going to come to is somebody who is the least dominant of the starting yeah. defensive backs. It probably, I mean, based on last year's play, it was Cam Williams. Uh, and, you know, maybe a little bit of Asa Turner in there too. But I, I, yeah. I think I really, really like one of the things I like about the way that Jimmy Lake has coached defensive backs and has kind of carried this on as he's moved up in the rankings is being able to train guys to be able to play every position in the secondary. So you yeah. can mix and match and you you end up with guys who can do more than one thing. So if somebody does emerge, you know, I think McDuffie came on faster and better than they expected last year. That doesn't mean that Kyler Gordon is just relegated to the bench forever. And yeah. he is an insane athlete and that will probably result in him making some great plays. But if his if his technique and his instincts were at the same level as his athleticism as a true freshman, he probably wouldn't have come to UW. <laughs> he would have been one of the top recruits in the country. So it's going to take him a year or two uh, to come around and, and, you know, get fully up to speed where his technical game is caught up to his physical game. And hopefully, you know, doing a little of this, a little of that in the secondary is a good way for him to, to get there. Yeah. And I think for what it's worth, my gut is that you look at him as a 2018 guy and and as a redshirt freshman last year having moments of being really good, but also having moments like, for example, that final soul-crushing drive by Cal last year where he was picked on kind of quite a lot. Um, but then you – so you look at his kind of um, uh, discrepancies between me being able to complete the play versus his athleticism um, versus how coaches are talking about him now – uh, one year removed, where it feels to me like, without sounding like a homer or someone who's being naively optimistic, that this might be the year where everything is caught up to his athleticism and where we might be able to see the result of all of that. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So let's take a break there. I think we got into some good depth on the home crowd, home field uh, topics. We're going to come back from our break, talk a little bit about the rest of the panel. Uh, what we know about kickoff times and the schedule, and touch a bit on the rest of college football. So we'll be right back and stick with us, and we will talk just on the other side of this ad. Thanks for sticking with us. We've covered the Huskies. We're moving on to the rest of the Pac-12 with a little bit of Huskies mixed in. We very recently got the schedule released for week one, uh, probably the most interesting thing. We had a pretty good idea it was going to turn out this way. Now it's official that USC and Arizona State are playing at 9 a.m. open conference play on uh, November 7th. That game could be the most important determining factor on who wins the Pac-12 South. How do you feel about that happening week one at, you know, an ungodly early hour for college football to be starting at, at local time? Um, I think if there were fans and there was tailgating and all that, I would be 
I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care because it doesn't affect me. I'm not a USC or ASU fan. But as far as I have empathy for other people, because I'm a psychopath, I would um, think that that would suck. Uh, and as it is, that's not like my favorite thing in the world. But um, when you look at the Pac-12's issues, which just being on later than everyone or all the other time zones are giving a shit, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe this is the right call. Um, and personally, I love getting up in the morning and then shortly after waking up having like breakfast football on. I love that. That being said, the thought of that happening and watching a team from the West Coast doing that is bizarre. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily, I think from a fan perspective, if, if there's live fans, it would suck, but you know, I guess if, if you're looking at a year where it's worth trying things out, why not, you know? Yeah, the only real concern I would have is the the impact it would have on quality of play. I, you know, yeah. I, as a, I think you're exactly right that experiment now when there aren't fans to screw over anyway. Uh, but for this game already to be happening the first week after the players have gone through such a strange roller coaster of an off season. And then you're also asking them to do the equivalent of you, you always hear about the, like the gambling adding against West Coast teams going to the East Coast because it messes with their body clock. Like how many of these guys are used to hitting each other at full speed uh, in full pads at nine in the morning? I'm sure the coaches. Well, I'm sure Arizona State's coaches will have their team ready for it. I don't know if Clay Helton is practicing yet. Uh, <laughs> but it's that's just another variable being introduced to an already confounding equation. Uh, same day, uh, you know, the rest of the games kind of spread out over the course of the day, and then two late games where the Husks open up at 7.30. Obviously, the, everybody's going to be remembering last year with the night, uh thunderstorms going late, game ending at 3 a.m. or whatever it was. How do you feel about the game being, uh, you know, 7.30 p.m. kickoff? Does, would you rather have seen a different time, or is this just something that works and gets us on TV? Uh, yeah, I'd rather see a different time. <laughs> <laughs> 9 a.m. I, I almost would. I mean, I wouldn't rather see 9 a.m., but I, you could convince me that I would prefer 9 a.m. Um, just because if it were any other team, whatever, you know, I don't like a 7.30 kickoff, but I can take it. But after the last two years with Cal, and as, but especially after last year, and just like the PTSD of losing to Cal at 2 in the morning, uh, on the which oh my god, seeing them release a 7:30 p.m. kickoff, it feels like they're mocking us, or they're or they're just like daring us to not crap our pants as fans. Um, <laughs> that's that's my sole reaction is just terror. Even yeah. though I know it's a separate year, whatever, I don't care. Yeah, it's also gonna. I mean, I, this is we're coming up on daylight savings time. I have a one-year-old. You know, having to stay up till if that game goes till eleven thirty or midnight, and then she's going to be up at six in the morning. It's going to—I'll get over <laughs> it, but I'd rather play earlier too for my own personal reasons. Uh, there are also four, at least four, Friday night games on the schedule this year uh, that can kind of wreak havoc on the teams playing on the shorter week. Uh, you know, there are already going to be scheduling concerns this year if anything has to be rescheduled or canceled. There are complex list of. Uh, contingency plans that the conference has put together. What do you think of the extra Friday games? Is it just kind of more of the same? This is good exposure. Let's just 
live with it, or is that a different scenario for you? It's more concerning because it has an impact on, it, you know, it, the equality of the scheduling within the conference. Yeah, um, I think it's more of the former for me, um, just because I think I think it's one of those scenarios where if if you're playing on a Friday and it's a ho hum game, whatever, no one's really going to know. But if you're playing on a Friday and it turns into some thriller of or or an upset or something huge, if there's something notable that happens on a Friday or or I guess a Thursday. Occasionally, there's like Thursday college games. Though usually those are are a group of five. Action, um, yeah, yeah, Maction or or Mountain West or whatever or BYU. You, you you scroll through Twitter when it's just that one college football game, and that's such good publicity. Um, granted, it can also be really great publicity for if a team is shitting their pants and burning catch fire. Um, so hopefully, any of those games will avoid that. But um, yeah, I think I think I kind of feel like the former, like yeah, like we all 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 just said. Yeah, the one other thing that caught my attention in Pac-12 headlines over the last week was Arizona State struggling with their scholarship numbers. They were apparently over their scholarship limit, and they've started pulling scholarships from out-of-state true freshmen who just came to campus. Uh, seems like an extra callous move to be doing it this year. Uh, I, I get why they're doing it for out-of-state players because they don't want to burn bridges with the local uh, high schools and coaches and AAU teams. But, you know, when you find yourself in this position, I mean, you can say, and we could all say, like, yes, the obvious thing is don't take uh, 90 guys for 85 scholarships. Like, only give out the number of scholarships that you have plus anyone who you already know is leaving the program. Sure, but nobody really does that, or very few teams actually do that. When you find yourself in this position, like, what is a team supposed to do? I, I, I think through that, I, I, it's very tough. I'm, I'm not defending ASU in this situation, and if it results in them having a recruiting disadvantage against the rest of the conference, then that's great for us. But uh, it just seems like a kind of an impossible situation, and they got caught between a rock and a hard place. Is there? A, can you think of any way out of this that doesn't lead to them just looking like total jackasses? No. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. No, yeah, I think it really is just being – it's like a you, – you have to keep yourself from being in that position in the first place. Um, I think that really is all it comes down to is – is making taking the steps now to prevent yourself from looking like a total horse's ass down the line. You know, I don't want to I don't want to uh, make too bold of a statement, but if there's any mantra I try to live by, I think it might be that. <laughs> yeah, don't don't make do now things to make the future version of you look less like a horse's ass. That's yeah, yeah. probably good advice. I had a couple quick uh, questions just, you know, since there has been college football played across the country, and I'm sure a lot of Husky fans have at least paid passing attention to that. Has there been any game this year that has jumped out at you or been, you know, particularly memorable or exciting that you have watched? Um, what was that one with Ole Miss? Oh, yes, 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 yes. The one with Ole Miss two weeks ago, not this weekend, but the one before. Oh, with where... all the interceptions? <laughs> Wait, what? No, no, it was last weekend. It was last weekend with Ole Miss against Auburn? Or someone. I watched, I watched the Ole Miss game last weekend. I've already forgotten who they played. 
I want yeah, I think, I think it was Auburn. I might be wrong, but where it kind of, especially after you saw what they that they almost you know they hung with Alabama for the whole game, um, it, it perfectly summarized the multitude of Lane the multitudes that Lane Kiffin contains. Where you look at how he can invigorate a program, then you just look at his just ass level of game in game management on their final drive where like. They started it, I don't know if it was the 25, it might have even been less than that, and they have to get a touchdown, and they he ends up wasting so much time on the clock, and they had two, I think, two timeouts. Maybe, yeah, yeah I think I, I, this is all coming back to And you're like, right. you're paying yeah. millions of dollars, and, you just, and, and, they had, and they were put in this position where they totally could have done it, and then, and then just like the worst clock management and progression of things in the last, I don't know, it was like 56 seconds or something like that. That was hilarious. Um, the other thing last week, um, seeing, this is really funny too because of the developments that I'm about to mention right after I mentioned this, um, with Wisconsin for the first time since Russell Wilson having a genuinely like a bona fide quarterback, which Part of me feels visceral um, disdain for because I'm like, you're Wisconsin. You're supposed to have some just heap of mediocrity at quarterback, gigantic corn-fed walk-on all-American offensive lineman, and some running back who crushes his fools, his enemies for breakfast. And seeing them have Graham Mertz be exactly as good as everyone thought he was going to be coming out of high school – who, you know, A, first seeing him in high school be a blue chip who picks Wisconsin and then gets even better and gets even higher rated by the time he signs with them. Seeing him come out, then go to Wisconsin and then take a redshirt year and then be even better than everyone thought he was going to be. I think he was five passing touchdowns. He went 20 for 21. Seeing that in a Wisconsin uniform is, I love it so much because I know you don't like Wisconsin. I like Wisconsin. And, but it's just so the antithesis of what they are. Um, and then fast forward, what, three days later, yeah. and he's out 21 days for COVID because he tested positive for COVID. And then I think his backup did also. Or, I think it was his backup who was supposed to be the third string and because the, the actual backup yeah. was out for another injury. So now they're down yeah. to their fourth string quarterback which is yeah so you have you have so Graham Merritt started because he probably would have started eventually anyway, but Jack Cohn who was their starter ladder was injured so he's out then you have Graham Merritt start be awesome test caught positive for COVID then his backup was maybe it was Jack maybe he just Jack Cohn is who they're calling that who's injured and then another guy test positive for COVID so now you have fourth string or whatever I don't know what string he is um redshirt junior Danny Vindenboom which is the name. <laughs> clearly a man. I love it so much. <laughs> so like a video game that. Dutch soccer player. Yeah, yeah, or or Linden High School basketball. I don't know. Anyways, um, so seeing that it's like Wisconsin, you get one game with a fantastic quarterback. Oh what? Oh you have no, that's not for you. You're going back to some rando. Who you know? Maybe Danny Vandenboom will end up lighting the world on fire. But I just. There, I, I find that to be so poetic, 
and not in a poetic justice way, just just poetic. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Wisconsin so much. has like a finite amount of efficient quarterback play that they can use every year, and they've yeah. gone through it all in week one. Already, you waste. They wasted it. Anyways. It was a great. It was a great week. Even just having the Big Ten back, I watched the. Uh, Indiana, I wound up on the Indiana-Penn State game, didn't watch it from the beginning, but Indiana hung around, uh, and they, you probably saw the ending, but even going back into regulation, Indiana scored with about 30 seconds left, tried a squib kick, and the squib kick just bounced right af- off of a Penn State uh, up man, so they got the ball at midfield, almost had a chance to kick a field goal to win it uh, in regulation. It didn't work out, went to overtime, and I'm sure you saw the highlight of the quarterback, Penix, I mean, remember that name because it sounds like, uh, you know, like a synthetic gender reassignment um, <laughs> instrument. Uh, but he he made that crazy two-point conversion dive uh, into the very corner of the pylon. And it's like one of those plays where, like, I hate what instant replay does to your ability to react to a play in the moment. But when there's a play where you watch the replay from every angle at every speed a hundred times and you're still like, I have no idea what happened there. It kind of heightens the sense of impossibility. And just watching yeah. that was just outrageously fun. Um, yeah. I think that that's probably uh, does it for our uh, segment on the rest of college football. But before we leave, we got to do our recommendations. Gabe, you weren't with us last time, so we got Max's recommendations. Uh, is there anything – non-football related that's been uh, keeping your head above water while we wait for the Huskies to finally kick off? Yes, there is. I'm very excited about this. Um, Back in uh, the week of the Apple Cup, the week before the Apple Cup that we recorded, I my plug was to anyone who was listening to this who for some reason lived in British Columbia or if you were in Whatcom County, to that Friday slash Saturday, yeah, my friend, um, my comedian friend in Vancouver was recording her debut album in Vancouver. So I said, go, go to there and watch it because you won't regret it. Um, and finally, it has been released this weekend or this week, whatever. I don't know what days are. Um, uh, so my, yeah, so the album, it's called Bad Baby uh, by Randy Newmeyer. She's super funny. Um, you can, a, if you want to find it, you can, I, I retweeted a little link to it on my, um, so you can find out my Twitter, um, which is at Gaby, not Gabby, G-A-B-E-Y, not G-A-B-B-Y. Um, you can also just look up, look it up on Spotify or whatever. Uh, her, her name's very German, so it's Randy, R-A-N-D-E. And then Neumaya, which is N-E-U-M-E-Y-E-R. Um, please, please, please listen to it. It's so funny. She's one of my, yeah. She's so, so great, and just one of my favorite comics from up there and one of my favorite people um, to to see when, well, back when I was still out in the country of Canada before all of this. Um, yeah, I cannot emphasize enough how much you should listen to it. It starts off with some hot takes about raccoons. Uh, please, please listen. Do it for people. Do it for yourself. Well, we're on the subject of uh, stand-up comedy. I don't have any friends to plug, but I did just finish reading uh, a very good biography of Richard Pryor. Uh, It's called Becoming Richard Pryor. The author is uh, Saul Scott. Scott Saul, sorry. He's got two first names, so it's confusing. Scott (laughs) Saul. And it's all about – it's a very detailed profile of his life 
basically up until he reached the peak of his fame in the early 80s. So he doesn't really go in depth about the lighting himself on fire incident or when he was a, a kind of a bankable movie star from, you know, 1980 to 85 or so when he was one of the most uh, famous leading men in Hollywood. But everything up to that point, uh, as he was refining his stand-up act, kind of getting into comedy, even, you know, the details of how he was raised. Uh, as I, I think it's pretty famous that he was raised in a brothel in Peoria, Illinois. But I, I think hearing the details about that and, and what that actually looked like is just a wild story and how he got out of it and how he became an entertainer out of that and the demons that it kind of that stayed with him the rest of his life and how he for a lot of it was just kind of like a, a cocaine and alcohol fueled maniac and just a terrible mm. person, but also wonderful creative genius really makes you appreciate somebody who is way, way ahead of his time and doing something that had never really been done before uh, and has been kind of imitated by countless others for 30 years, 40 years after. So very cool uh, look into him coming up from where he did. Uh, any final thoughts, Gaby? I think that we're, we're a week closer to football season uh, and that wraps it up for me. But if you have anything else you want to add, now would be the time. No, I just need football. I'm going insane. Also, Blake Snell. I just watched him, and uh, looks like the Rays are about to lose the World Series. Yeah, they took so out no. uh, Husky superfan Blake Snell uh, probably a little earlier than was warranted and replaced him with North Dakotan Nick Anderson, who blew it for, oh, for my whole state. Our people. Well, all right. Are I we going to do that thing where we just kind of kind of talk and then Rob or Chase is out, or should we like Rob's say Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. That was good. We should we should end like that from now. Just joking. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye.